You are listening to Single Serves. My name is Arno Martire and I am your host. Single Serves is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. For our inaugural season, we have some great guests lined up and you can expect to hear about such topics like social media for architects, organizational culture, criticism in media, and architects not practicing architecture, among many others. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio and follow us on social media under the handle at revelator underscore T-O. It's R-E-V-E-L-A-T-E-U-R underscore T-O. For season one, episode two, I interviewed Tony Guerreri, CEO of Roman Molding and self-described culture maven. Some years ago, Tony recognized the need to transform his company culture in order to ensure its survival. In the process, he discovered that a purpose-driven culture could drastically improve his quality of life and that of his employees. He has since been relentlessly advocating for better organizational cultures. So today we have Tony Guerreri with us, the CEO of Roma Molding in Toronto. Thanks, Tony, for being on the show. Yeah, really happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So today's topic is going to be organizational culture, which you're an expert in. Uh, if you don't mind me, we're going to jump right into the question. So you started uh, a few, number of years ago. Uh, you were working for this company and the 2008 recession kind of hit and it was a big um, downturn for you guys. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, what happened to go from a more conventional type of company to a more culture-focused company and how that happened? Yeah, the 2008-2009 global financial crisis, while it was very painful, uh, was a blessing in my life. I... I uh, wasn't leading the company at the time, but knew that this company needed a different type of leadership. And we were run more based on fear and more based on a dictator style leadership. And it was going to be my way or the highway, metaphorically speaking. And so if we were going to make it, we had to change the way in which, in my opinion, the company was led. And that's when um, I was appointed CEO. And I was appointed CEO because I had a vision of putting people first and I had a vision of uh, understanding a different leadership model that our company needed to, you know, not only get out of a recession, but also to uh, what we call restart a business. And I think at that point, it was very pivotal for us where we put people first. And I'll never forget that first day on March 1st, uh, you know, some eight years ago, we had uh, called a meeting. And we had told, we had called a meeting. We didn't tell the individuals within our company why we were having a meeting. We just said we were having a meeting. And so we shut down our company and we had a 30-minute meeting. At the time, that was unheard of, that we would shut the company and have a meeting during the day. 
And basically I stood up and the remarkable thing is I have this all on video, which is amazing. I stood up and I said that we had failed our people. We had failed the company because we didn't put them first. And, uh, you know, some eight years ago, that was very shocking to hear. I, I was scared out of my wit to admit such a failure. Uh, and I guess for me, my, my turnaround was I had made no promises. The only commitment I was going to make was I was going to put our people first. And I believed if they were happy, then in turn, they would make our customers happy. And in turn, the business would, you know, start moving in the right direction. And, and that's what we did. Which makes a lot of sense. So was there a particular time where you became conscious of that need for a change? And how did you realize that it was about putting people first? Yeah, it, there was an aha moment for me. I was in Las Vegas. We were doing, we were doing twenty-five to thirty trade shows a year. And during that global financial crisis, we were in Las Vegas at a trade show, no different than any other trade show. But this trade show, you could probably throw a bowling ball down the aisle, and there was no one present. There were no buyers, and it really makes for a somber mood for exhibitors. And uh, I was not happy that day. And the leasing agent came to me and said. Tony, you could probably use a drink. Why don't you come out to dinner? I'd love to host you with, you know, five or six other individuals within the industry. And we did, and it was wonderful. And I had a conversation with someone, uh, you know, across the uh, table from me. And after a, a glass of wine, about a 15-minute conversation, she reached into her purse and gave me a book. And the book was called Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea. And while at the time being gifted a book from a total stranger, 15 minutes in, she said, I really think this book will help you. And um, I hear the sentiments that what you speak of, but I, I think this book could really help you. And it was a book on Tony Shea and how Zappos turned around their company or at least built their company based on a culture foundation. And it was pivotal for me because I went to the, uh, I, I actually went to Zappos during that trip because I didn't really believe entirely the book. But once I went there and I seen that people were genuinely happy, they felt trusted, uh, they were they were welcoming. And I, and I thought to myself, if I, a total stranger coming in, are made to feel this way, how are their customers made to feel? Mm -hmm. And that for me was the aha, would my, would my team, you know, make a total stranger feel that way? And, and I know the answer was no. And that's when I knew something had to happen. So when you were at Zappos, you could feel that being in the space? You oh. could feel the, the different culture? Oh, I, I, I mean, I was a, I was a kid in a candy shop. When I walked in um, for myself, I, I felt something very different. You know, I've, I've had the pleasure of walking into many organizations. This organization, uh, when you walk in, people actually put their head up and say hello. They say good morning. Um, they make eye contact. It, it's those subtleties within the organization that you start to feel something. And after spending, you know, the better part of an hour, I knew there was something magical there. So culture is clearly important to you and you strike me as someone who practices what he preaches. Um, why is it so important? And, and more importantly, how do you go about defining a culture? How do you, because you started from zero. You, had, you knew you had to change something and you knew your business needed um, a bit of an 180 degree turn. And beyond that book you read, Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea, which I also read and is a fantastic book that I highly recommend to anyone. Um, Where did you know where to go from there? Well, you know, after that trip, I came back and that's when I had that meeting. And uh, I can see on the people's faces that there were three camps that arose as a result of that meeting. The one camp was, oh my God, Tony, I, I can't believe you're doing this. I'm so excited. What took you so long? And then there was the um, other camp that was like, hey, okay, okay. 
I'm listening. I've got one foot in the fence and one foot, you know, off the fence. I'm kind of on the fence. I'll, I'll listen to you, but you got to prove yourself. And then the third camp was, um, I don't care what you say. I'm going to be miserable anyways. And, um, that's just the way it is. So, you know, you're, you're stuck with me. And there was, believe it or not, more of the detractors than there were of the, um, I call it A players. And I knew I had a, a long road ahead of me, but I also knew uh, from my learnings that culture was not going to be a three-month strategy. It was not going to be a six-month strategy. It was going to be at minimum a five-to-lifetime strategy. And while I knew what I was playing with, um, I knew that the journey, I would be able to get there and get the right people in the right seat. So how long would you say it took to go from the very start to a point where you were confident that you had set the company on the right path? I would say it took a solid three years. Um, year one, if, if I can describe, year one was a nightmare. Because um, I went after the culture vampires, the people that were sucking the blood out of our organization. And companies out there listening, they know who they are. Um, but without a culture strategy and a focus on it, they kind of deal with it. Mm-hmm. Kind of like an ailment you have. Your your arm is hurting you. Um, it's not killing you. It's hurting you. So you deal with it. Mm-hmm. Culture vampires are the same way. Mm-hmm. So I dealt with them first. Year two, we started to see some light. And year three, we st- certainly started to see the trajectory of what happens when you, you know, uh, intentionally um, focus on your culture. So what would be the what, two or three most telling things that happened within the company before and after the transformation that you can speak to? So I would say uh, they're very, very blaring. So we have, um, you know, today it's far easier to recruit people to our company. In fact, any job posting we we put, we get minimum 200, you know, resumes, whereas you know, six, seven years ago, um, it was very slim pickings. So I would say that's the first one. I think we get a lot more internal referrals. You know, a lot of great people know a lot of great people. And and so I think that's been, in, you know, very helpful. And I think most importantly, um, what's telling is how our customers feel. So we have an a, both an internal net promoter score and an external net promoter score. And our both internal and external net promoter scores are well uh, into the high 80s. Whereas, you know, uh, I would say seven years ago, I, I would be lucky to get 60s. So what's a net promoter score for people who don't know? So a net promoter score is a question that we ask uh, both internal and external at different times of the year. So it's one question. It's, uh, would you recommend uh, this company mm-hmm. to your family and friends? And, you know, there's varying different ways you can do that. It's a yes or no question or a scale of one to 10. We've done both. Yeah, it's those questions you see pop up on websites and stuff. What were the the toughest decisions you had to make? Um, and maybe some of which were unpopular. And how did you go about making them? I think some of the most um, unpopular decisions we had to make were certainly the most pivotal in illustrating the belief in culture. So we had some individuals in our organization throughout the years that may have been, you know, A players in sales or A players in operations, but for some reason or another didn't align with the values of our company. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you you can't have values and then have people walking around not aligning with them. That there's a, there's a, there's something fundamentally wrong with that. Mm -hmm. And, we hire and fire based on our core values. And I think some of the unpopular things were asking people to leave the company who didn't 
believe in the values of our company, who were otherwise really great at producing KPIs and results. Mm -hmm. But as a result, we believe our values are stronger and more important than any KPI that anyone could ever set. That makes sense. I, I read this story many, many times. I keep going back to it. There's this company in... It's a Danish company, but it's based at the London Vitso, the uh, furniture company. And they talk a lot about culture and their hiring practices. And there's a story of one day there was this um, installer they were trying out for the job because they make shelving systems, but they also have installers that put, put them up. And by any measure, that guy was a good fit. He was very competent, did the job well. But at the end of his first day, Instead of carefully packing up his tools, he threw them in the box and left. And they collectively decided to not hire him just because of that. And I thought this was a very telling fact that showed that the company really cared about its culture and cared about the people they worked with. And it makes sense because if you do hire the wrong people, your employees are going to have to put up with them and they're not going to be a fit in the culture. It's going to affect a lot of people. Why do you think so many companies are not working on their culture. And I, and I can speak specifically in my field, architecture and design. Um, I see a lot of companies that struggle because the lack of culture may not be the only reason why they struggle, but it's certainly a part of it because they, they have a, what I call by default culture. It's it's the what you had before your transformation. It's the my way or the highway. It's a bit of a di dictatorship. And I've worked for some of those companies. Why is it so hard for people to understand um, the power of a strong culture and why is it so hard to change? That's a great question. I, th I think for many organizations, including me prior to having my aha moment, I, I think there's not as much, um, I would say, education or, or at least awareness about what culture is. I think people, when they hear the word culture, they think of foosball tables and popcorn and that's a common one, yeah. You know, and, and, and whatever else that goes with it. Um, and, and for many, they feel that it, it, it might be um, hard to quantify in this fairy thing that some individuals do in HR. Uh, I would say that's one reason. I think another reason is, again, tailored to awareness. I, I was just not aware. Um, it's not like you go in business school. I mean, I, I graduated from a great business school. It's not, it's not as though they, they teach you those fundamentals. And while culture is not your sure way to win... Um, it's certainly a sure way you're going to lose, but just because you have a great culture doesn't mean you're going to, you know, excel in business. So I think for the most part, uh, awareness is very important. Um, yeah, I, I would have to say the awareness uh, component. I think it's becoming a lot more, um, there, there's a lot more awareness. I would say seven years ago, uh, you know, I encourage everybody to do this. I, I, I hashtag the Google and to send me alerts on anything company culture seven, eight years ago. And I used to get, you know, two a day, uh, two articles a day. Today, I'll get 10 articles. Hopefully in 10 years, I, you know, I'm flooded with a hundred articles of, of proven cases as to why it's so, you know, fundamental and beneficial. So why do you think in the last 15 or 10 or 15 years, it's been more of a, a concern in the, in the larger cultural landscape and we see more and more companies um, tackling their culture and actively working at developing great um, organizational cultures. Yeah, I think there's a, a certain demographical change within, uh, you know, the employment pool as well. I think um, there, there certainly is a war on talent. And if people aren't super focused and laser focused on acquiring, um, and not only acquiring, but uh, keeping 
you know, maintaining and developing and growing talent, um, you know, they, they haven't been watching the news lately. So I think um, the mere fact that this is a global marketplace today, that people can do anything from anywhere today, doesn't restrict them from, you know, a one hour drive to their, you know, destination or to their either retail store or whatever it may be. I think today that, you know, I have a bunch of friends and, and I'm sure as you do and a lot of the, the listeners do have friends that work for companies in Australia, but they're in Toronto. Mm -hmm. So I think the world in which, you know, the work around the world is changing. I think the demographic and the, the pool of candidates coming in have a different expectation. Um, and I think, I mean, I, I, I want to put this out there. I think there's a lot of challenges out there um, with mental health and things of that nature. So I, I think there's a lot of, you know, uh, reasons why, why one would focus on their employee happiness. And so you spoke briefly on um, hiring practices before and, and, and I've read about your company that you spend a lot of time vetting candidates. Um, what's your hiring process like? How do you, how do you choose people? How, how do you make sure that they're a good fit for your company? So it's, it's certainly first and foremost done by a team. Uh, we have uh, we have an extensive and long and some somewhat um, tedious, I would say, recruitment process. We believe if someone's going to join our team, they got to add some major value and certainly have to align because we know the danger in bringing in one culture, you know, misfit. Uh, it, it could really be detrimental to an entire, you know, cell team and then organization. So, I, you know, what we do is we the, we have an HR and uh, we have a talent and culture team leader um, and team. They typically vet. We use science-based, um, uh, I would say, analytics. So anybody that sends in their resume, uh, albeit it's great, but we also have them vet through science. So we use an awesome tool called PI, Predictive Index or Predictive Success. And that tells us there's a few predictive um, caveats that we need or indicators. And it's a small survey. It's two questions, probably takes five minutes. But that, uh, just that alone, I don't know how companies wouldn't um, hire with some science-based. And I'm a huge advocate of that, uh, both for their end for the candidate, so they know they're going in the right seat in the right direction, and also for the employer. Because either way, you don't want someone in pain that otherwise thought it was gonna be one thing and it's another, because pain is bad for both people. So we do that, and then they're brought in you know, at separate intervals to see different leadership levels within our company. So typically, if they're um, uh, a leader or a manager, they're brought in, they're sat with a talent leader from there, they're sat with their department, so the department would actually interview them. Then we have a culture vet, so we have individuals from different areas of the company, could be a customer care individual, could be someone in marketing, they get in a room and they vet them for culture. If anyone along the line votes that that person doesn't align with our culture, regardless of their credentials and their skill level, we do not hire them. And we also make it very clear as to why they're not hired. And that's amazing. Um, so does that make every one of your employees a cultural expert of sorts? Like they're all very well versed in the company culture and, and any one of them can instantly say, yeah, this guy's going to be a good fit or not. Well, you know, culture is not just defined by Tony Guerrero. In essence, it's defined by the people who show up. And if you've done a good job curating, now, eight years ago, I couldn't do that because that wasn't a curated group, you know, based on values. Today, I, 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 I 
you know, our culture and talent team lead can pull anybody from anywhere and feel really good about their judgment call around our value set. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's very important. So I want to briefly go back to the predictive indexes you were talking about. Can you tell us a little more what that is and how it works? Yeah, predictive success is a, it's a survey tool that is used. Uh, and so an individual would uh, send in the resume and should the credentials be, you know, in line with what we're looking for, we then proceed them to, to send them a link to our surveying tool. It's a tool based on a psychology over 70 years of knowledge. And uh, there are two questions and they're literally um, uh, answering the questions based on what they feel most represents them. The results from there are really simple. It tells us whether they're assertive or not. Um, it tells us if they're better suited for groups or individuals. Uh, it also tells us, which is very telling, their sense of urgency or not. And then the last one would be, it tells us um, their level of detail. So someone in uh, sales probably wouldn't need as much detail than say someone in our forensic accounting department. Mm -hmm. um, one, one might say they're very detailed, but the science I would say to about 98% is accurate. And by the way, I'm going to encourage you, I, I will send you a link if you want. And uh, Yeah, you can tell me if I'm a good fit. Well, you can tell yourself because you could read it. So yeah. we do also share the results with the candidate. Okay. I think that's very important. I think that's where it stands. There's some standoffish-ish in other organizations. We tell them, we'll create the survey. We'll give it to you as well. Mm -hmm. So you see what we're seeing. Okay. So is it a proprietary tool or is it something that's available out there? No, it's me? not proprietary. We It's a it's our partner. Okay. It's a partner of ours. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, two things. One is how would you recommend to someone who's interested in a culture change, like who understands what we're talking about and sees the benefits of going through that transformation to actually take the first step? So you're asking what would they... What would you recommend them to do? Oh, that's brilliant. Um, so first steps, I, I would say, first and foremost, is I would get your most senior executives in a room and, and just have a very light discovery into what you guys or the ladies and gentlemen around the table feel their culture is. Mm -hmm. Actually, just you know, whiteboard it. What, what do you feel are values that are important within your organization? Uh, have that, store that, and put that aside. And, and then uh, I would say, if you're serious about creating it, there is a sequence of steps that would happen. I would first, uh, first step I would do would be to call a general meeting or something that brings attention to what you're gonna share. Because if it's that important, I think it's important that you show them it's important. In our minds, what we did is we shut the company down for, thir for, for 30 minutes at that point. Um, and we shared how important this is. Telling people it's important and showing people it's important are two different things. Yeah. So shutting down a company for 30 minutes, 150 employees globally, sends a statement. And, and uh, I think for us, we wanted to learn what are your values within the company? I, we, we had 150 people which, in which we didn't know what they valued within their lives. And we started right there. And our first step was identifying what are their values. Um, and, and it was a wonderful journey. And, and there's certainly, you know, throughout my blog, there's papers on how to do that and things of that nature. Did you... Uh, hire external help to do that, or you did it all internally? We did it all internally, yeah. Well, that's pretty impressive. Um, how would you suggest to we spread the message um, further afield? Like, How do we bring those ideas to more companies? And, and that's my first question. And the last question would be, do you think 
a, a highly developed culture is applicable to just about any company or there's certain types of companies that work that would be good um, candidates for a great culture change and others that will just never get there. So do you want me to answer that one first or? Yeah, let's start with that one. Okay. So, um, well, whether, whether, uh, you know, individuals or companies want to attest to it, but all companies have a culture, good, bad, or ugly. Um, they all have it. Many choose to ignore it. Uh, many choose to focus on it. Uh, I, I would say I don't think any company's immune to building and fostering that. Um, I think some organizations are going to be harder than others, highly regulated organizations, probably a little bit harder. Uh, but I think this is a fundamental within your organization. And while I call it put people first, um, a culture strategy is identifying the norms, the rituals, the language, what you deem, you know, what you deem as normal within the organization, defining what that is, and then shining a light on that. If, if your organization is all about creativity, well then how do you foster and build a culture around creativity? You have to shine a light on it and, and have people, ha you know, align with creativity. You can't have non-creative people in a creative environment mm -hmm. if creativity is your thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think personally, uh, this runs the gambit across all fields and in all people in all countries. And so you've been preaching that a lot outside of your company, and you speak a lot, and you write a lot about those things. What's the next step for you and for other people who want to spread the same message? Like, how do we bring that uh, more to the to the forefront of the corporate cultural landscape? I, I think for myself. I'm going to speak personally for me, you know, while I blog and I'll speak and I'll do keynotes and I'll have the pleasure of doing these podcasts and thank you for having me on once again. Um, I, I, I just think it's fundamentally important that people go to work and feel rewarded. You know, we spend eight to 10 hours minimum at work. I, I just, from a philosophy standpoint, from a pillar in my life, I think that they come and spend the better part of their day at work. And I think it's on us, on leadership, on executives to take note of that. And the minute you can show that your team, that you care about their well-being, they will go through walls for you. They will move buildings two feet for you, let alone make a customer happy. They will go above and beyond when you show them you care. And I just think that's the right thing to do. And, and the more we can build advocacy around this and ambassadors, uh, I, I think this is one of the fundamental things that can make our world slightly better, can make our world slightly happier. I think if both parents go to work and are elated and feeling great when they come home, imagine how that permeates into their children and then their children's friends and, and into our community. So, you know, I, I feel culture is one of my ways to make the world a slightly better place. That's fantastic. So I want to end on maybe a little more of a concrete note. Can you give us one example of one of your people going above and beyond in, in a way that blew your mind? Oh, well, it, it happens daily. I mean, we have people that, you know, whether a parcel missed, missed going to downtown Toronto and it's Friday night and the traffic is just jam-packed, without a question, they will get the package, put it in their car and drive down and it'll be a two-hour drive in the middle of traffic one way because they feel that we have to deliver remarkable service and deliver wow through service. They're not, they're never asked to do that ever. Um, they feel compelled for, for me, that blows me away. And, and that's done. I wouldn't say every week. I wouldn't even say every month, but from time to time when needed, 
I'm telling you, these these people will move mountains. That's pretty telling. Um, it was very inspiring to hear you talk about the the vision beyond just taking care of your employees, but it was something that really stuck with me. If I had to re remember one thing from this interview is how taking care of your employees impacts everything down the line, their families, and and it can treat, I think it truly has the potential to make the world a better place. As lofty as this may sound, it's it. It's pretty concrete based on what I've seen today. So I want to thank you for taking the time to do the interview. It was fantastic. And uh, I hope we can uh, continue the conversation. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Follow us on social media at revelator underscore T-O. It's R-E-V-E-L-A-T-E-U-R underscore T-O. This episode was produced by Revelator Studio and edited by Ryan Akhtari. Until next time, ciao.